Oh, maybe that's... There you are. Ah, there you go. Hi, Carl. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> How are you doing? It's early there. Uh, it's I, Actually, it's not that early. It's 9.30 right now. Um, I, I woke up a little late today. It's okay. It's a gentleman's, it's a gentleman's hour to wake up. <laughs> well, I, I normally wake up to feed my my puppies because I have to feed them. Right. So they you have these little orphan dogs. I remember when 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 this happened. You're you're like a foster da- or you're a adoptive dad. Yes, yes. Now I have three, and uh, so it's like what we we used to keep them in the house, but they they just wreak havoc. So so my fiance got tired of them. So we we locked them out. <laughs> at night and then you know open up and, and feed them in the morning so, so I, I normally wake up pretty early but today today just uh, won't go stay um what are their names okay so we have uh madu uh which is uh, uh, uh honey because like the the Balinese and java indonesia they borrow a lot of a lot of from sanskrit right so it's actually right yeah it's, it sounded like a yeah hindi word yeah 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 so um so Madu means honey, and his brother is called Soklat. Um, Soklat, like in, in Bahasa, Indonesia, uh, chocolate is uh, 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 is uh, chocolate, right? But oh, okay. The, but on Bali, the you know the, the older the Balinese people, um, especially the older folks who haven't you know learned Bahasa Indonesia properly, they they speak with like. Um, Kind of local accent, like there's a Balinese accent, so they call they pronounce it like S, like Soklat. So, oh, okay. oh wow, because, yeah, because they're Balinese dogs, so they get Balinese names. So, uh, so we have Soklat and Madu, and then um, like uh, about a few weeks later, we got another stray coming to our neighborhood, and so I adopted her as well, and her name is Lychee. So we oh, named. Oh wow. We name all our food like we name all our dogs after food. Honey, <laughs> chocolate, and, and, and light. Yeah, this is a theme of your of your Twitter feed is like just your obsession with food and eating. <laughs> I I am Chinese. You know, that's what we're all about. Just just eat. Like I like to say, ninety percent of the Chinese culture is food. Good. What else? What else do you need? Exactly. What else exactly. Do you need? Um, Carl, do you want to introduce yourself? Say who you are? Sure, sure. Um, are you recording right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yo, yeah. But but I don't have to include any of that stuff if you don't want. We can just start from here. Because I just kind of, I don't really have like a, a, a gimmick or anything. I don't say welcome. Okay, no worries. Which I guess is a gimmick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like to include a little bit of banter in my podcast as well. Just kind of <laughs> ease the guest into it. Um, so I am uh, Carl Za, and I run a podcast, Silk and Steel, uh, mostly focused on China. Uh, but the reason I wanted, I didn't name like a China podcast or anything like that, because I, I, I'm also interested in, you know, China's interaction with neighboring countries, and especially along the Silk Road. So like, the, you know, I have always like a passion and interest in the ancient Silk Road. And, and so I'm actually going to invite a uh, 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 a friend who is of Iranian heritage and who is going to do um, uh, we, we all, I already had invited him before to- I've listened I've listened to his episode it's a great episode yes the Rome versus Parthia yeah the, yeah yeah, yeah. so we're going to do an epilogue of that uh, soon 
it's going to be the the so-called lost Roman legion in China. So it's always like a kind of myth and legend. Is him and I we're going to set the record straight. We're gonna we're gonna talk up. That's like an epilogue of Battle Carhai and and talk about this supposedly lost Roman legion that ended up in China. So it will be very exciting. Well, I'm looking and, forward and, to that. Yes, yes. So you know, my my show is mostly focused on China. Um, you know, history, culture, geopolitics, and uh, you know, my my passion is really history. Like I'm a I'm a big history. Like, you know, like the only reason I even dabble in geopolitics is because right now, as you know, um, there has been a rising Sinophobia in particularly U.S. And, and, and broader Western media. And, and so I got drawn into that a little bit. And, and I wanted to um, give people a context because often people talk about China, especially in the West. They, they really don't have any background. I mean, all their preconceptions about China is whatever they read from newspapers, from, 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 from New York Times, Washington Post, etc. And, and those are a very, if that's the only, your only source of information about China, you get a very, very distorted view of China. Because uh, I like to say China is like a big elephant. And we're all like blind men in a room trying to filling up the elephant. But the Western media, it's not so much that they they make up straight lies, it's that they are... Well, sometimes they do. <laughs> yes, sometimes they do. Yes, we know that. You know, we have, we have New York Times, you know, chilling for Iraq war with that, uh, all that yellow cakes stuff. And then, then um, but most of the time, what they do is they, they will contain a grain of truth in the report, but, but they're laser focused on the negative aspect of China. I mean, China is a big country. It, 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 you know, it's, it's a very multifaceted and complex uh, history. And, and uh, what the Western media tend to do is they tend to focus on elephant's ass, you know, like, yeah. so, or like a toenail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if, if that's all you, if all you know about China is what you read from, from newspapers or, or words from Reddit, then, then yeah, you have a very, <laughs> very distorted picture. So I, will, I try to combat that by just provide people with a more historical context. You know, I, I started a new uh, modern Chinese history series with the Decolonized Buffalo podcast. Um, you know, he kind of wanted me to do like an introduction, introduction to Chinese modern history, how, you know, basically, uh, you know, China struggled through the period of colonialism and imperialism. And finally, Put the country back together again, and 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 uh, you know I had some positive feedback on that, and I'm also started just doing a chronological retelling of Chinese history from the very beginning. You know, I started from prehistory, like the the Chinese mythologies, and and I just worked my way to the first Chinese dynasty. Um, so I have a long way to go, and I'm not in a hurry because <laughs> I love to talk. <laughs> Well, so this is this is the this is what I wanted to bring you on the show about is that um, I I have like a that's sort of theme one of the themes of the show is you know these sort of overpowering um, hyper sort of overdetermining force of Orientalism in everything we do and sort of say and think about the East now in what's at the beginning of Orientalism the famous book by Edward Said he um, 
he sort of makes this point about the fact that Orient means something in America and something totally different in the UK and Europe is proof positive that this is someplace that exists in imagination, that it's like a, it's imaginative geography. So like, so, but what's interesting and especially, and this is what I want to get into with you, get, get into with, with you today, um, is that the overlapping forces of, or like over like, like sort of the tools of Orientalism, like the Orientalist toolbox is very sort of very complicated, very powerful. It's got a lot of different sort of, it's got a lot of different places where it can sort of press its levers, principally in the kind of information sphere we lived in, we live in. Um, and, but what's, but the, the sort of, what's happening now is that say some the experience of Iran is a particularly interesting, is a particularly interesting case study in kind of what Orientalism can do or how it's kind of attuned to like a rogue state. Right. Like Iran is like the world's most powerful, sort of discursively powerful rogue state. It's like rogue. But China is not a rogue state. Right. China is is something else. Right. It's like it's it's impossible to sort of partially has to do with size. But I think it's more important that that it's a kind of in the Orientalist fantasy, at least here in, in sort of North America. I imagine it might be different in, in Anglo and in, in England or UK. Maybe not. But like what China is here is is more than just a it's not a rogue nation right it's a active threat to a world order of two three four hundred years or at least that's in the orientalist imagination that the thing we built up i'm sorry to interject no go ahead go ahead because i am old enough to remember china listed as one of the rogue nations back in like days uh clinton days clinton administration <laughs> so yeah. so like so there, at one point you know china was treated as iran today um yeah. and, and even a certain extent north korea as a rogue state but what happened is uh just in the last uh 20 years or so you know china has risen so much and and grew so much now it's not just simply rogue state yet like you say now it's a uh, it's a peer competitor, right? To the to the uh, a threat to the U.S. hegemony. So it's 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 a threat to the Western dominant yeah. world. Yes. Yeah. So this is like peak Orientalism. We're finding because like it's, it's the 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 sort of Orientalist fantasy is not just about sort of like men with curly mustaches and or curly toed boots and sort of swirling mustaches and you know, dancing bellies and stuff, like women, you know, doing belly dancing or whatever. It's, it's actually a kind of geopolitical threat. It's, you know, the specter of Islam holding the, whole, the Holy Land. It's, you know, the idea that, it's the idea that huge, the, and modern version of that kind of is, oh, China's all over Africa. China is doing imperialism in Africa, which is the most insane statement in the world, which insults the modern mind. But Part if, before we sort of get into that, because I feel like we can get into that, I think there might be, I think there might be sort of some use. I want to ask you about the term "century of humiliation" and how and like what that means, because I I discovered it long ago. I actually read some horrible kind of anti-China memoir by like a Western journalist here. Her name is Jan Wong. I don't know if she's known outside of Canada, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if she's known, but I didn't know it back then. Yeah, I didn't know it back then, but it's kind of just like lib kind of like, oh, I missed the good old days before the before the revolution. I didn't recognize it then. I was like in high school. I didn't know any better. But one of the sort of images that I had is, but I don't know if I learned about it there, but sometime around there, I learned about century of humiliation. And I never, it's always been a phrase that's like stuck with me. 
because it's it's um it, it it's uh, and this is kind of orientalist reading too to say this but the i when i see sort of china whatever and sort of does in a strategic like geostrategic sort of outreach to the world or whatever it's flexing i just think in the back of my head century of humiliation like these are like the grandchildren of of people who saw a century or like saw the tail end of that century like the living memory of colonialism is still basically alive right in china 49 there's there's still people who are alive from 49 probably probably tens of millions of people actually so maybe we can kind of maybe you can kind of yeah like maybe you can kind of just i would love to hear you kind of riff about what that means even like what's the word in chinese like where does it come from like i should have given you time to prepare this but it's always something that i wanted kind of to learn about yeah okay so the the term century of humiliation refer to the period from 1840s, uh, the start of First Opium War, to the, the founding of People's Republic, 1949, right? So it's almost exactly 100 years. And this, this late 19th century and early 20th century is years to be a person of Chinese ancestry, because um, prior to that, uh, for for the longest time, even for millennium, China had been the center for civilization in East Asia. Um, I mean, you know, there was a there there's like a, a China centered East Asian civilization where you know, like the um, country, neighboring countries like Japan, Korea, and Vietnam borrow extensively from the Chinese culture and adopt it to their own. And so from that position, uh, it come the, the catastrophic Opium War, which is only a beginning. And where before, whereas before China saw themselves, uh, the Chinese see themselves as like the inheritor of this thousand year old unbroken line of civilization. And suddenly to be subjugated uh, by the power of uh, gunboats to yeah, humiliating yeah. Uh, treaties. So for example, you know, like not Hong Kong is the news. I mean, the Hong Kong came into being because uh, British through the first opium war defeated China uh, because British wants to sell opium to China. Uh, and when China outlaws uh, opium sales, uh, Brit the, the opium smugglers of Britain they lobby the British, British parliament and British government to launch a war, a drug war against China, uh, a forced China to accept the opium trade. And uh, a defeated China had to cede Hong Kong Island to Britain. And, and you know, that's how the, the history of colonial Hong Kong came about. And, and the, like I said, the opium, opium war was only a beginning. Uh, I mean, the, that was the first opium war. And, and, and 10... 20 years later, there was a second Opium War in 1860, uh, and, and, it's, and it's nonstop. And after that, there was a Sino-French War in 1884, and then the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894. That's when the Japan itself westernized and joined the imperialist club. And, and so it was this nonstop pounding by, by Western powers, and then come 1900, the Boxer Rebellion, when the so-called eight allied nations, that's uh, Britain, France, 
Russia, United States, Japan, Austria-Hungary, Germany. Uh, how well, I'm coming to seven and Italy. So eight ally nations, uh, mostly Western power, just Western powers plus Japan, and they uh, stormed the the Chinese capital Beijing, captured the Forbidden City, and and you know this ostensibly to protect foreign interests in China. I mean, the, the reason they're foreign interests in China is because prior the after the Opium War the imperialist power have imposed a series of unequal treaties in China. So they carve out, all, in addition to grab places like Hong Kong, they carve out these so-called foreign concessions in places like Shanghai. So Shanghai was a divided, segregated city. It was, there was a China, Chinatown, there was a Chinese part of Shanghai, and there's a foreigner part of Shanghai, you know, so-called international concession that was uh, formed by merger of the British and US uh, and, and American concession. And then there's a separate French concession. So on these concessions, um, foreigners do not answer to Chinese law, right? They're governed by their own, their own laws. They imported their own police. The British actually imported the Sikh police from India to police the Shanghai International Settlement. And, um, and it's not only limited to Shanghai. It's um, as, as, you know, China loses more wars, more cities are forced to open up. So my hometown, Chongqing, which is not on the coast at all, is about you know 2,500 kilometers up the Yangtze River, like in the very heartland of China. Now Chongqing was also forced to be open and forced to have hosts like foreign concessions. And in places like Wuhan, you know, now Wuhan is famous because the- <laughs> poor Wuhan, everyone's going to talk about the virus for the next 50 years. They're going to talk about Wuhan. All the Chinese people in other provinces are going to make fun of the Wuhan people. They're going to be like, ha ha, you were the virus people. Uh, this is going to, it's going to be very annoying for them and their children and grandchildren. Yeah, but, well, I mean, finally Wuhan got its name recognition. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but Wuhan, you know, was also had, was forced to host, uh, you know, foreign concessions. So, so basically these are series of, uh, um, you know, they, the foreigners carve up the best real estate in town, right? All the waterfront property. And, and you know, they, there are, uh, even outside of the foreign concessions, the foreigners still exempt from the Chinese law. So, you know, if they kill somebody, if they kill a Chinese person, they cannot be tried under the Chinese justice system. Because, you know, according to the British, you know, the Chinese justice system is wandom and, and cruel. So, you know, like, we can't have that. Um, so they, the foreigners are only answerable to their own police and their own, own set of laws in China. And on top of that, China had to pay a huge uh, war indemnities to these imperialist power each time China got defeated. So, so British received a huge amount of silver. Uh, so did Japan. So in fact, when, when Japan uh, defeated China in the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894, 1895, the amount uh, of silver that uh, Japan received from China, the silver payment, was equivalent of six years of Japanese uh, government revenue. And and then, you know, Japan reinvested that money into military buildup and to, you know, (laughs) to build up five battleships and 
and eventually allowed them to defeat uh, Russia in, in Russo-Japanese War, which, by the way, was fought on the Chinese soil. So most of the Russo-Japanese War, aside the famous uh, battle of Tsushima, which was fought on the Tsushima Strait between Korea and Japan, the, all the land battles was fought in Manchuria, Northeast China. You know, whereas like Chinese themselves become kind of helpless bystanders on their own soil. And, and, and they, and, you know, this, this period in China was often referred to as like the semi-colonial period because you know, China was not uh, governed as a full colony, like, for example, India. But this is something that Iran shares, too, with China, too, Col- dominated but never colonized. Yes. And so, so it, it's, it's uh, definitely dominated. And, and the foreigner, the, uh, you know, the, the Westerners enjoy immense privileges, which some of them <laughs> enjoy up until today. And, uh, and, and that's and, and against this background, against this background of humiliation and defeat. Um, interestingly, uh, you know, in the West, there's a, there's a corresponding development of Sinophobia. So just as, you know, the, the Western armies are in China brutalizing the population, um, the, in the Western pop, popular imagination, right, I, I think it's, it's a function as so, sort of guilty conscience that these, these Chinamen are out to get revenge, right? So we, that's why we have, like, a caricature, like Dr. Fu Manchu, which is popularized by a guy who never... Uh, been to China, <laughs> doesn't know any Chinese. So he wrote this series of high fantasy novels, basically about this evil Chinese uh, genius that's trying to take over the world, trying to dominate the, the Western world and, and threaten the white civilization, right? Especially white women. <laughs> and, and, and it was made into a series of Hollywood, Hollywood films. So, so this, this was against the backdrop of, you know, boxer rebellion when, the foreign armies were actually in China fighting and looting. So, for example, um, during the, after the Second Opium War in 1860s, when the when the uh, when the uh, British the Franco-British force joint force uh, sacked Beijing, that took the Forbidden City, um, and and you know, at the time there was a. a, a the, the British commander, Lord Algin, who, by the way, was a son of the other infamous Lord Algin who, who, who uh, of the Algin marble fame, that the guy who basically looted the, the, um, all the Greek, uh, Greek statues. Uh, and, but this is a song, song of, uh, song of uh, 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 Lord Algin. So, so Lord, the younger Lord Algin ordered the burning down of Summer Palace. Uh, which is just a very grand palatial complex, and and um, I I remember growing up in China in 1980s. One of my first movies I went to watch in the movie theaters is called The Burning Down of Summer Palace, <laughs> about the Second Opium War, um, and and there there are scenes that that really stuck in my mind was when um, the, the the battle before uh, the the, the French British army marched onto Beijing. There was a their battle just outside of Beijing. Um, it was waged between the 
uh, the Mongolian cavalry um, under the Qing Empire versus uh, uh, the, the British and the French. And, and you know, it was, it was a memorable scenes because you see these Mongol cavalry charging the British-French lines, you know, on horseback with arrows and, and, and lances, whereas, you know, the, 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 the British and the French, they're armed with, you know, muskets and, and cannons. And it was a totally uneven match, you know, despite the, the, the bravery of the, the Mongol cavalry or wiped down to a man. So, so this is kind of the early memory I had, you know, growing up in China in 1980. And, and this is very familiar, I think, to most people, uh, Chinese people who growing up in, in PRC, that, that we learn about this. And, and, and like you say, the, we, you know, the, the tail end of that century of humiliation is within the living memory. So, so I mean, I mean, yeah, 49 is not that long ago, right? I mean, it's because, uh, because even after, you know, the Boxer Rebellion 1900, you know, immediately, you know, the, there was a Japanese invasion in 1930s. And then, um, you know, that, that, you know, people say that World War I started in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. But the war started in China a lot earlier. Like it, Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931. And, and then, you know, the full-scale war broke up in 1937. And my grandparents lived through that. My, my oldest uncle lived through that. They, they had memories of Japanese occupation. And, and you know, both, both my... Um, was it really as the Ip Man movie depicted it? Oh yeah, I mean, I I I I don't I don't need to go to class to learn about this. I mean, I, I hear stories from my my grandparents. I have I have family from both ends of China. So my 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 dad's side of the family was um was from Zhejiang, Hainan, Zhejiang, which is about forty five minutes drive south of Shanghai, and in nineteen thirty seven. Uh, Japan um, did a, a pincer attack against Shanghai because, you know, Japan had initially in 1937 when J- Japan launched the full-scale invasion, they had expected a, a, a very quick victory because they, they were able to capture the entirety of Manchuria in less than a couple, three months in 1931, particularly because then Manchurian warlord Zhang Shuiliang ordered no resistance to the takeover. So, so the Japanese military thought they could repeat that, uh, that, uh, repeat that conquest in broader China in 1937. And, and, but they got bogged down in Shanghai in intense urban battle for three months. So in the end, you know, Japanese uh, high command realized, oh, wait, wait a minute, you know, Shanghai sits on the Yangtze Delta. It's, a penin- it's like this delta sticking out um, we can just uh, do a pincer attack from behind and cut off the supply lines of the Chinese defenders. So they landed just south of Shanghai, and my grandparents' hometown, uh, Hainan, was straight on the path of the of the Japanese advance. And so I visited China um, last year in 2019. <laughs> One of the things I I, I, you know, so like I haven't really delved into it. Like, I mean, I con- conceptually I understood, uh, you know, what Japanese did and 
But in, in 2019, when I went back, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional just talking about it. Um, it's understandable. It's horrible. This is like the trauma. It's like real historical trauma. It's not, uh, and it's like it's it's amazing. The story of the success of the Chinese, like of China, modern China, in terms of repelling outsiders and re repelling invaders. Let me put it that way. That's a much better way of putting it. And just the fact that it's its own. It's its own sort of pillar of the world right now and fears no one, has no qualms standing up to the world powers who, for as you described it, like over a century, just stomped all over it and like not only used, I mean, we didn't even talk about the export of Chinese labor, like why Chinese people are everywhere. So like the same experience of like the similar thing that happened with India was done with Chinese people, but far, like they never had the... They never had the, the the good fortune, at least some of East Asians, to go to to go and spend time and be an elite in Africa, right? Like Chinese people were used as surplus labor. Like Chinese people built Canada. I'm I'm calling you from Toronto. So like that, like the the the, the railway that sort of connects Canada is built by at least part of it indentured Chinese labor. Like that, those memories are still those still are very real. You know, it's not something that. So I mean, if we can just take it back, I think it might be. It might be interesting for people to see that, like, you know, in some ways, like the Japanese occupation during World War II is kind of the pinnacle of, of all of this. I mean, maybe not. Maybe that's too Hegelian of a reading. Maybe that's, like, not a good way because, like, who's to say 1901 isn't or whatever, right? Like, but, like, the idea, though, is that there's a telos of things and, and the, the final humiliation is, like, being occupied by your tiny neighbor who is like this little tiny little island compared to you. That used to, to look up to China as source of civilization. So in fact, uh, you know, Japan, when it, it modernized, one of the Japanese thinkers, they, they put up the slogan called leaving Asia, joining Europe. And by leaving Asia, wow, he was talking wow. about leaving the-, the Disease blinds. Yes, yes. <laughs> he's talking about Asia. He, when he, Asia, he's really talking about China. And because for, for centuries, you know, Japan had ex, in, extensive cultural borrowing from China, and China was kind of looked upon as the model of civilization. But by, you know, after the um, Opium War, it, was a, it sent a shock to Japan as well. It's to see suddenly uh, China, this, this uh, preeminent power in East Asia for millennia, so easily de demolished by the British. And, and what Japan decided to do then is uh, when they themselves were forced to open by Commodore Perry uh, uh, his, and his black ships. So what did they decided to do is they decided to fully embrace, embrace westernization. And by fully embrace westernization, it means like all the package of colonialism and imperialism as well. They're like, oh, okay, the, the European countries became powerful because, you know, they, they went out and got themselves colonies. And, and so for Japan to survive in this doggy dog world, we need to have our own colony. So then, you know, they, they look, the first countries they're looking to colonize was its neighbors. Of course, it will be uh, Korea and Okinawa. By then, Okinawa had its own, before Okinawa has its own independent kingdom called the Ryokyo. So Japan <laughs> occupied both. And then, you know, that brought itself to conflict with China. That was an order of, original genesis of the first Sino-Japanese war. And, and you know, the, the idea of leaving Asia 
joining Europe is that, uh, you know, China, Asia symbolized China represents this kind of decaying old civilization that's no longer suited for the modern world. Whereas the few Europe rep, and the modern industrialized power of Europe represent the future, right? So that's what Japan wants to be. And, and you know, we saw the consequence of that, of course, you know, I, I talk about, um, I can talk about later about, you know, my, what I found out when I traveled to China in 2019. But as you mentioned, you know, the, the Chinese diaspora labor, we have the English language word coolie, right? That's, that's uh, Chinese word coolie, literally means uh, bitter labor. But coolie, coolie also referred to these indentured Chinese labor that were sent all over the world. Um, in fact, uh, just interesting factoid, Bruce Lee's great-grandmother was a so-called protected woman, uh, basically a concubine of this, uh, of this Dutch trader in Hong Kong called Charles Bosman. And Charles Bosman's job in Hong Kong was uh, <coughs> basically purchase these uh, Chinese coolie laborers and funneling them to Dutch Guyana. Um, so Dutch Guyana is in South America. Today is Suriname, just a little bit north of Brazil. So this was a time when um, slavery was abolished. So to replace the enslaved African laborers, then the various powers start to import indentured Chinese labor. So in places like uh, Brazil, like, like uh, Northeast, not, not Brazil, but the Dutch Guyana, and also places like Peru, um, you know, a lot of the Chinese uh, went went to Peru to work in the mines, and then um, and then Americas, of course, you know, the, the Chinese built the, um, the the most difficult part of transcontinental railway from California to Utah. It's through the Rockies. One one reason is because back then there were there weren't too many um, European laborers available in out. In the West, in California, and also, also the 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 capitalist American capitalists at the time saw a way to um, exploit the, the cheap cheap Chinese labor. Once you know China was opened up by uh, as a result of Opium War, uh, because before Opium War, most of the Chinese subjects were actually forbidden to leave China. Like it's not legal to leave China, but one of the clause under the Opium War was that you know. Now that the Chinese subject could leave, but at the at back then, the the reason that was in, inserted in the treaty clause is so powers like Brit, Brit, Britain could import the indentured Chinese labor all over the colonies. So so not only in North America, but Chinese also went to South South Africa, and, uh, and Jamaica. And, yes, I mean it's insane. Like they like there's like a. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's obviously not the only case. I mean, we know this about South Asia, the sort of continent of human beings that were shipped around the world and sort of placed like, you know, like, uh, you know, as if they were just like stats on a page, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of mind boggling to think about that. But it's more the, the angle that I was thinking about has to do with, you know, the, we have a certain image of Mao, right? He's this kind of avuncular, smiling kind of East Asian uh, c- Colonel, like Kentucky, like, you know, Colonel Sanders, right? He's smiling. He's like a brand. Like, that's why, like, but also his image has been purposely cheapened by, like, not just the sort of 
you know, the same thing they do to all revolutionaries, like from non sort of oriental places, they sort of demonize them, like same thing that happened to Khomeini, right? But, but also, but, but like, think of like, um, uh, Andy Warhol, right? Just using Mao's face to ironize, like, I mean, like we think of sort of like online posters today as like irony poison, but like, you take a man's face who literally changed the course, or not literally, but like he was a man who represents, let's put it that way, who was a huge actor, important in hero history, a kind of world historical man who with, together with his like, together with his, uh, with his movement, changed the course of world history forever. Like that's, like we can't even, like we don't, we don't have that. It's like that Iranian cleric is like, who do we kill in America? They don't have any heroes, but like we don't have like if you the, the equivalent of that in North America are colonists, they're slave owners, right? They're people who came here and took the land and murdered and raped and pillaged. Whereas with Mao, I mean, yeah, okay, I'm thinking of annoying diaspora and Falun Gong people screaming at me, oh, Mao did the same thing, but we know that's bullshit. Like it's not the same comparison. But like to to me, like the fact that Mao remains so occluded. And the and the the power of the forty nine revolution because it couldn't be defeated, right? It's not other revolutions that were defeated, right? Like forty nine couldn't be defeated and it hasn't been, and it's proven to be one of the most mortal threats forcing facing sort of Euro American modernity. In fact, uh, before Mao came to power, you know, through the World War Two uh, and even even uh, early Cold War. U.S. plan had been to prop up China under Chiang Kai-shek as some kind of a U.S. client state in East Asia, like a junior partner, like like the role Japan plays for U.S. today. Um, that was that was the U.S. plan for China, uh, and and mostly to counter basically the Soviet Union uh, influence in East Asia. But that was that 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 plan plan went kaput because the 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 communist victory on mainland China. And, and ever since 1949, you know, China was, became kind of like this pariah, <laughs> like this outcast. I mean, this, uh, you know, you know, in the English language media, they talk about bamboo curtain and how somehow like Mao closed China to the outside world. In fact, it's the opposite. It was the U.S. It was U.S. that placed a blockade on Mao's China from 19... 49 up to 1972 and and that's another reason china didn't swoop in and just uh kick british out out of hong kong like they could easily have done is because hong kong kind of remained a sole window for china to interact with the outside world especially the the, in the western camp uh part of the outside the world so 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 hong kong remained an important conduit i mean that, that the role of Hong Kong is actually because it's a window to China. That's why Hong Kong is is important. And and uh, uh, and about Mao, Mao himself said, you know, there are two things he was proud of, uh, two achievements he was proud of that in his life. One is, you know, 1949, he kicked out Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan, and two is uh, cultural revolution. Now, cultural revolution itself is very controversial and it's actually not looked upon favorable in China at all. But, uh, but the, what Mao will probably likely be remembered is the first, you know, the, 
that the establishment of PRC, what, what Mao did in 1949 is he put together this, you know, he, he put together China from shambles on ruin and and from that basis you know like they of course Mao made made a lot of mistakes i mean like i'm not going to make mix excuse for Mao for what he did uh during cultural revolution or or um great leap forward but but what Mao did was build a foundation from where china could put itself back together again and so so in 1978, when, uh, you know, after the uh, 1976, after the end of the Cultural Revolution, you know, China can, you know, open up and reform. And, and, and a lot of people were, I remember there was some criticism in 1980s when China first opened up, you know, there are people saying, oh, what's the difference from, from before, from pre-1949, when the Westerner come to China to do business, to to exploit Chinese labor and Chinese resources. Well, actually, the difference is huge. Is China has sovereignty now, right? Before China doesn't get to say when Westerner wants to build, say, build a railroad through Manchuria or or uh, or, or uh, you know put up all these buildings in Shanghai because they feel like it because they can. Like the difference is after 1976. You know, is China is inviting, you know, foreign capital to come in. But anytime, if China chooses, but they're guests, right? Like they're guests. That's this. Yeah, it's they're not. That's that's the important thing. People forget that. You know, this is the sovereignty. Sovereignty over China's sort of market economy is in the government's hands, and that's and that's the funny thing about our capitalism is that it's actually less less evolved than Chinese capitalism. Like whatever you want to call, like if we want to talk about capitalism, whatever that means, like capitalism ultimately, like depending on if you want to be a land, like want to be like a theorist about it, like it's state management of the market, right? Like, or at least state stewardship or whatever you want to call it. Now that's impossible for us to imagine in, in my part of the world because we have oligarchs running our economy and, and the government is in the pocket. It's like, you know, and I don't know if you follow baseball, but like there's this, figure called the commissioner and the commissioner is chosen by the owners so it's not like the commissioner commissions anything and separated the owners and the players the commissioner represents the owners and so the same thing i find here sort of power politics here sort of the president represents the ruling classes and has sort of levers of power but ultimately the market belongs in privatized hands and that's just not the case in china no matter what you say about the existence of chinese billionaires they don't write policy. Exactly. And that's, that's a major difference between China and United States. You know, in the United States, if you're wealthy, you can, you know, you can, you know, start AstroTurf campaign. You can sponsor think tanks. You can influence policy, you know, easily. You can, you can get yourself elected. You know, you can be a Donald Trump and become <laughs> yeah, president exactly. of the United States. I mean, that's just not possible in China. Like, you can be a billionaire like Jack Ma who owns Alibaba, but there's no way Jack Ma will influence Chinese policy. I mean, I mean, I mean, Jack Ma is no matter what you say about the Chinese uh, mode of governments, but Jack Ma is at mercy of the Chinese government. Yeah, rather exactly. Than exactly. That's, exactly. But, but in United States, it's exactly opposite. You know, the, the business. The government is, is answerable to business interests. In China, it's not. 
um, you know, the, the, the business is constrained by the government. And in fact, that's one some of the biggest complaints that the, the, the current, uh, the Western media complain about China is, you know, we already talked about sovereignty, right? Like a lot of complaint about China is this Chinese practice of requiring technology transfer uh, for companies that wants to do business in China. That's that's assertion of sovereignty. Yes, if you want to come to China, uh, you know, use exploit Chinese resources, sell to the Chinese market, fine. Uh, you have to share your technology. That that has been the Chinese policy since 1980. You know, and, and but like the, the you know the, the, of course the Western uh, Western media's complaint that's unfair competition. But that's what sovereignty means. That sovereignty means you have control over your own resources. You know, if, if, the, if the foreign company wants to come in and take advantage of the market, whatever, they have to play by the local rule, right? Well, of course, you know, the, you know this is a global, global capital. They don't really care for that. You know, they want an unrestricted playground. Right. And so that, that's hard for people to imagine over here, right? Like over here, the results of sort of China's and, – and it's sort of like a – it's kind of like a sort of lacuna or a kind of, it's just a kind of occupies a kind of menacing um, sort of yellow menace kind of black hole of fear. It's kind of like, oh, it's over there. It's, they're very, you know, especially in Ca Canada has its own interesting sort of story with, especially where I'm from, Toronto, because you had a huge influx, not just of first of Hong Kong in when the switchover happened. I remember sort of like all kinds of people from Hong Kong coming over and I grew up with a lot of them. But then also in the coming years, I saw more and more people coming over who were mainland Chinese and you know, who had done very well, who's, who would send their kids over and then their, grand, their parents over, like middle-class people, and the grandparents would raise the kids. And so I would always go to these houses and I was raised with like middle-class Chinese people. And I just sort of accidentally learned about Hong Kong and mainland and Taiwan sort of and kind of got my history from from those sort of scenes but ultimately like ultimately like we're talking about one like just China alone we're talking about what 1.5 billion people like this is this is a, a chunk of humanity that's in one country ruled over by like a massive party that has 100 million people right like the communist party has a nine, like 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 do you really think some Weipo like some Weipo articles or like the Epoch Times are going to dent that hegemony. Like that's my, that's like my, like we, I grew up with Falun Gong all over the place. And I, I had sort of known, I was like, who are these weirdo Tai Chi people? Like, what are they doing? And it looks so peaceful. And then, you know, they're on the streets and they have the banners and stuff. And I was like, and then I slowly realized, I was like, oh my God, this is the Chinese MEK. And I never knew it. Like there's some weirdo freaks that have been weaponized by the West and like showcased as the sort of radical dissident. So yeah, it's like I mean, okay, I, I have to say like a lot of people who join Falun Gong initially, they're probably just, you know, looking for some spiritual guidance, you know, like they... Kind of like the MEK originally too, although the MEK was like a big deal. But, but Yeah, and then they, but, but, but the, the, the people who are, you know, Falun Gong is a cult, okay? So people... Like there, there are some nice meaning people who who joined it initially just for for like spiritual guidance, whatever. So for 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 exercise, and but the people who are in charge, who people who are in control of this cult, Falun Gong, 
are, are some of these are not the nicest people. <laughs> and, and, but the irony about Falun Gong is uh, that Falun Gong's media empire, Epoch Times, was originally founded uh, by the BBG, the, board, uh, the broadcasting uh, board of broadcasting governors, now renamed uh, U.S. Agency for Global Media. So it was it was founded by U.S. government, right? And th- and now now we have Epoch Times that was founded by U.S. government buying out Facebook ads, you know, uh, YouTube ads, promoting QAnon conspiracy and promoting <laughs> Trump. I mean, this is a fucking biggest one of the biggest blowback I know. Like, it's, this is the like, snake it, eating the snake of astroturfing eating its own tail. They, they, you know, right now, Epoch Time is having more impact on the Western democracy than it has on China. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this, is, this is like, yeah, this is kind of how ridiculous this situation is. And, and uh, you know, like, I forgot, <laughs> kind of lost my, my train of thought for a second. Um, uh, because this, this sidetrack about all following, um, about the, the, um, it's just the, the, I think the general, the general air of powerlessness of the West over China policy, over anything to do with China. And this is this is where Iran and China come together. And same with Russia too, right? No matter what happens in the future, no matter what government comes to power in either of those states, any of those states, it will never have American sort of colonial or sort of American wealth interests dominate those countries again, like never again. Same with, Ven- same with Venezuela, same with Cuba, ne- North Korea. So when you like draw a line in the sand to borrow a phrase from Bush, like like that's that's a permanent thing. And that's what they never get over. And that irrelevance is what makes them pump more money into the idiot normie brigades and to like the the like not just idiot norm, like idiot, you know, Falun Gong weirdos, but then also the sort of hardcore right wing Hong Kong protest nationalist movement and also like. Just idiot journalists who are clueless, who go over there. I literally know, I went to high school with one, a major newspaper's, a major newspaper in Canada's representative in, or sort of like journalist in, I think she's in Beijing. And I, she says the most like normie things. And I'm just like, oh my God, I know you. I went to high school with you. I cannot believe you're in China and reporting on like one of the biggest countries in the world. And you're like one person with like, a two-person team, probably. Like, like the idea that one, you know, one enterprising sort of 40-year-old person, woman can go into, or person, man, whatever, can go into China and then report the news as if that's like anything significant of like a country of 1.5 billion. Like, like, we don't have access to China, not just like geostrategically or politically, like we don't have discursive access, right? Like we have to go through them. We have to go through by the way, I love CGTN. It's a very good source of clips of like coverage. CGTN, is that the Chinese government's television network? I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Uh, it used to be CCTV uh, over uh, global. Now your rename is uh, China Global, global. Network. Uh, yeah. uh, television Network. Yeah, uh, it's CGTN. Yeah, it's their yeah, press it's really TV. Awkward, uh, Acronym actually, I, you know, like RT is very easy to remember. Right? Even press, press TV, it's easy to remember, right? And like CGTV, I often like I couldn't even like get my acronym right. What CGTN? Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful. NGT, yeah, it's it's like I don't know. People, people were like people always uh, 
you know, like in the West, especially talk about Chinese propaganda, Chinese propaganda. I, 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 I laugh because I'm like, you know, if the, if the Chinese know, really know how to do propaganda, like we would not be talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. you know, like they don't need to, like, there's nothing at stake for them in convincing idiots in like Richmond and like Los Angeles and like Midwest town of whatever. There's nothing that like that that anyone in China requires those people to believe. Like it's a it's a like that's the thing that doesn't we don't matter to China. We don't like they have their own country. Like it's it's their own power, and they're never gonna like ha they're never gonna be like kicked around again. And like that's what we don't get. Like that's what and that's the Iranian story too. Yes, that's what made people like the proponent of the Chinese uh, U.S. hegemony really antsy because now. Like suddenly, like there was, I, I lived, I graduated college in, uh, I went, I, I went to college in 1990. So, you know, like that was the period when uh, Francis Fukuyama came out with his book, The End of History, right? We, we thought, okay, this is it. End of Cold War, the, the U.S. hyper, uh, the U.S. hyper power uh, rule overall forever, right? <laughs> pretty bleak decade actually and then i um and it was that kind of uh complacency in in the u.s u.s power that that made people suddenly uh kind of jolted awake at first during the great recession starting in 2008 right when people are realizing oh you know maybe things are not going so great i mean i mean from from then till now i mean it's Blatantly obvious, like we are living a very dysfunctional oligarchy, wrong, <laughs> wrong economy for the benefits of of a few, and 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 and, and especially with the more recent election campaign of uh, uh, you know Bernie Sanders, I mean like how DNC sabotage it, and there's like even that facade of democracy is kind of peeling off in front of younger people and, and 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 you know but at the time when the west especially the western government is floundering uh, they seek to blame assign blame elsewhere to 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 our external enemy you know that's where china russia iran comes to fit the bill of boogeyman and in fact uh, you know speaking of orientalism uh, John uh, Fairbank, who is uh, one of the U.S. top China hand, um, has wrote a book about the U.S. perception of China. I mean, to, to, you can extrapolate to a larger like Western perception of China, really. It's like for centuries, when Westerners talked about China, they're really not talking about China. They're using China as a foil to talk about their own domestic issues. Yeah, it's a projection. Yeah, exactly. So, Same to this day. To this day, it's still true. Yes. So China is always this great other, right? So like, oh, you know, we are democratic. They are totally tolerant. <laughs> They're despot oriental despotism. We have liberal democracy, right? That discourse, like, was from the days of opium war. Like, I was reading about uh, opium war. What what struck me was it was actually pretty modern, a modern war in, in the way the war was conducted. That the first, you know, you have business interests, you have opium smugglers deploying a lot of money uh, in, in, through the British media to whip up a public frenzy for war and 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 to paint China as this like 
uncivilized threat to the to the Western white civilization that must be contained. And and then um, you know you have the you have the uh, the these businessmen that lobby the 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 British politicians to to swing the the the, the vote the swing the tide for war and and we've seen that basically happening in you know more recent times like Iraq <laughs> and, and 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 then but uh, it's also the 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 road the media play that they they you know they to to whip up the wars they have to convince the public you know China is this big bad place that that that's uh, that should be our enemy should be the focus of our military might and and you know the the, the rhetoric at the at the time in British newspaper talk about how you know the the Chinese was ruled by a despotic regime with little regards for human rights. This is the same script being taught being used today. Yeah. US that's media. yeah. That's like, and also like, I realized as a youth, I realized that like, oh my God, all that Tibet bullshit that I heard in the nineties, that was just what they did in Syria in 2010. That was just like the same operation, like the same sort of faux celebrity. I mean, it's not the same, but like the, how like, you know, there was like the concert for Tibet and all these, like the beastie boys were all over it. And like, you know, that kind of like, wait a minute. So you're a Western person living in Hollywood, Los Angeles. And you're saying that you want a chunk of another country to separate and be its own autonomous country. So you're a revolutionary <laughs> in based in Los Angeles for a country that you probably have never visited. And also the language you don't speak and the history you're probably not aware. And you know entirely through a, um, a sort of one figure mostly, right? The Dalai Lama. Is there any other part of the Tibet struggle that we know of other than the Dalai Lama? Like, it's just, to me, whatever you want to say about the justice of the sort of Tibetan cause, the fact that we've never heard anything substantive about what Tibetans want. Like, there's no, like, Tibetan Intifada website, like, that I know of, at least, that's, like, reached out and said, no, we want independence from this colonial occupying power. No, everything that I've seen around, like, the demand for Tibetan independence is from Western sources funded by Western people pushed by Western publications. So as an Iranian, I know better than that. I know that, the, that these institutions don't have the interests of Iran when it comes to dividing it up, right? They'd love to cantonize. That's their dream, is to cantonize, because cantonizing makes it easier to control, right? And so that for me is like, whenever I see sort of China news, and I mean, I do eventually want to go there and spend time there and see it, because to me, like we are talking about a shift in like human history away from 400 years of white supremacy, just from the fact that the, like the U.S. military, which is the greatest military that's ever been assembled, is terrified of not just China, but North Korea, which is a fraction of the size of the U.S., of the, of the Chinese military force. The fact that they're terrified of North Korea and they don't even think about fucking with them. Like, what does that say about like, what the West can do to it's like compared to say the sort of history you were talking about and like go ahead sorry i was ranting yeah the, i mean it's so ridiculous the, the, the amount of propaganda we are being fed in the west and i was uh just before prior for me uh departing us and coming to bali i remember i was 
surfing in um, trussels in San Clemente, California, just just between the LA and uh, and uh, the San Diego County line. So beautiful Southern California day, beautiful waves. Everything was just super perfect. And then sitting next to me, these two surfers, they're, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm worried about North Korea. Oh, I wanted to paddle over and smack them over the head. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? We, we are in this beautiful, beautiful Southern California weather, like uh, surrounded by beauty everywhere. And you are here talking about like a non-unicorn mythical threat that, that you are being fed by, you know, like by, by Cold War propaganda, essentially. And like and not, and not just Cold War, but like stale, thirty years old, like like eighties style propaganda, like you know, radio free Europe stupidity of like you're like that's just like the oldest trick in the book. Oh, do the Chinese want more freedom? Maybe they don't have enough human rights. And it's like, you've been doing this for fifty years. This isn't working. This does not work. Who is this for? It's actually for the guy in San Clemente. It's for that guy. It's nothing to do with China. And the fact that, you know, like now there, you know, with more Chinese people studying, uh, traveling, working in the West. And, and, you know, now the Western media is saying, oh, why, why majority of these Chinese people are supportive of Chinese government or, or, or acting patriotic? Well, it must be because they're brainwashed. Yeah, that's the most insulting, racist thing. Like one thing, oh, I was remember you. You were talking about um, I don't know how to say her name, but I love her. I love her YouTube. Li Ji Qi, Li Ji Qi. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Li Ji. Yes. Yeah, she's like this kind of. It's like it's like pastoral. It's kind of like pastoral porn. I call it pastoral porn. It's like a villager kind of anti. I love it. It's like inspiring. It's like inspiring for me to like see her do this stuff. But like, I had people who follow me. We're like, oh, this is CPP, CPP propaganda. It's like, what are you talking, CCP propaganda? It's like, what are you talking about? This is a human being who has like a skill set, who's putting it for other human beings, not us, probably her own Chinese human being, because it's not really, it's not for us. Like we're watching it and it's some kind of propaganda for us. Like what kind of sick, self-centered worldview takes the world and, and makes it all about them and like, my narcissistic everything has to do with me. I mean, this is this is the thing that drives me so crazy about you know, normies and libs in the West, and even like the Jacobin rose emoji types, you know, who think they who think they're in solidarity. It's like you don't know shit. You do not know shit about anything. You don't even know about your own country. Like most Americans don't know where Wyoming is. They couldn't tell you what like most towns or like most states look like. Like as if that then. They can trust the most horrible institutions who have shown to lie through everything and be the worst kind of thing as if they're just truthful about other parts of the world, as if the same forces that don't shape the news around Bernie or, you know, Biden or whatever, all the disgusting things that we see happen inside the country, as if it's not occurring for things that are outside the country. I mean, this is like a, one that, like one thing, like, the, like that's, that's the kind of Tibet thing for me. I was like, oh my God, Tibet was just a... Pro was just like a Syria regime change op. Like, oh my God. Like, which is not to dismiss any sentiment of like people in Tibet who who wants who want autonomous zone, but like, that's none of my business. I don't know anything about that. Like, whose business is that? Is that like the guy from Beastie Boys' business? No, it's not. He has nothing to do with it. He has no relevance. But because of our narcissism and the power of Orientalism to kind of 
put all of this into a kind of prism that reflects back on us, somehow that gives you the right to like say stuff about other parts of the world that you could say, I want to divide up parts of Syria into my Kurdish autonomous zone that will then be democratic and free. And you're some asshole from Brooklyn, like, or from San Francisco, no pun intended. But like, like that's like, that to me is like, you are doing regime change, but in like, it's like, that's like the, when you're, when you're, when you talk about other places and major sort of violence that you want to occur, major sort of seismic things, political complications, whatever, like you think that you have this sort of ability in your mind to just make that happen as if you're sort of Napoleon pointing on the map saying, I want to go there. Like that's not, that's not how the world works. Uh, what what actually um, a lot of the Western uh, intelligence agency has been successful doing, especially post Cold War, is um, through media to to adopt a lot of the rhetoric of the left. You know, adopt a lot of the rhetoric of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and then use it against the government they don't like. And 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 you know, we we see like now. You know, people talk about uh, how you know the, the, how China in Africa is uh, is 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 somehow colonialism, neo-colonialism, or or imperialism. I'm like, hello, you know. I <laughs> as for people who actually grew, you know, like my grandparents actually had to live through the period of imperialism and colonialism. I mean, that you know, my in 19 19- 27, just just outside my hometown of Chongqing, a British British gunboats were bombarding a Yangtze River tongue. And it's not is a, that it's the not is a, that the Chongqing? How it's spelled? Yeah. Chongqing, oh, yeah. Yeah. Chongqing okay. is my, my hometown. And uh, just outside of Chongqing, there's a place called Wanshen. So in nineteen twenty-seven, uh, so again, Chongqing and Wanshen is 2,500 kilometer up the Yangtze River. People can look it up on a map. It's in the very center of China. In 1927, when my grandpa is still a child, British gunboats were bombarding the river town of Wanshan, right? That is colonialism and imperialism. As far as I know, China is not holding gun to anybody's head to take, to take on Chinese loan. And those are decisions made by respective African governments. I mean, you can make an argument whether those African governments are um, representative of their own people or, or, or beholden to, to you know, the, 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 the interests of the local people. You can make an argument for that, but it's, it's a dealing between sovereign states, right? It's not China didn't go in there sending its gunboats, you know, they do, they're doing what Americans do, but better. And they're doing it without having to smash any sort of indigenous resistance and, and to pulverize them. They're doing it with like, they off, they bring and like build things, whereas Americans go and destroy things, right? I mean, this is, China's moving into Iraq next thing. Like we're going to see that happen in our, soon in our lifetime. And that's not stopping. That's another thing, uh, you know, the, the, the Iraq war. And Greens, Alan Greenspan pretty much, you know, like admitted in, in his memoir that, yeah, Iraq is about oil. I mean, he, he didn't, he was a way he said it. Okay. It's not about we go in there and grab their oil, but it's about we control the flow of oil. So, so the, the according to Alan Greenspan, the, the, the idea of going, 
U.S. invasion of Iraq is because, you know, U.S. saw that China is increasingly dependent on uh, oil imports from Persian Gulf. And, and U.S. wants to be able to control, you know, who, who, gets, who gets oil. And, 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 and that was the whole rationale of, of U.S. invasion of Iraq. But they fucked it up so bad that, you know, China, after Iraq war, China went in to, you know, bid for all the construction contract and all <laughs> servicing all the oil fields. And now, you know, China is still one of the largest import border of the Gulf oil. I mean, like... And their connection to Iran is getting stronger and stronger with every passing year. I mean, I guess it fluctuates. But in terms of the future, like China does not... China has not shown any compunction to break the U.S. blockade on Iran. I mean, I guess the details are sort of more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, you, China and Iran, that's something people in the West don't understand. China and Iran has a long historical ties stretching like over a thousand years to the days of Silk Road. I mean, like this, this was before, you know, you know, <laughs> before Columbus traveled to, to North, to America. So this is, this is before like, you know, like the, the, um, a trade with Europe was even a thing. This, 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 this relationship long predates every, anything, you know, you know, even be, between, between China and Europe. So, so this, this relationship will continue. I mean, it's not, it's re- regardless of what U.S. government wants to do. Because, you know, China and Iran both have their own interests. Uh, you know, uh, in, 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 in a current U.S.-dominated world order, you know, that just means China and Iran has a lot of area where they can cooperate and overlap. And, and, and of course, you know, the U.S. media try to present this as some kind of a axis of evil, <laughs> this, this evil alliance of, of despotic regimes out to get Western democracy. But the fact is, most people in Iran and in China, they just want to get on with their lives. They don't care. Then nobody cares about, you know, freaking dominating U.S. You know, that's yeah, yeah. They're reading the they're reading like Weipo editorials and crying about it every day in Beijing. Yes, that's what they're doing. They're saying, my God, we're getting hammered on this. Can you do how long can we sustain these these terrible blows of these fucking dorks in D.C. and New York bullshitting about China like as if it matters? Yeah, it's funny because uh, the U.S. embassy in China. And, and the Iran, Iran uh, foreign foreign ministry actually had a had a had a Weibo fight in Chinese <laughs> in the full view <laughs> of the Chinese social media user. It's great, and and of course, you know, like the, the overwhelming support were were on the side of the, the Iranian foreign ministry. You know, like people because you know because the the U.S. embassy in China will often come out with all these like self-righteous pronouncements in Chinese and, and you know, a lot of people hate them. <laughs> yeah, it's just the U.S., everywhere it goes, it just posts cringe everywhere. That's all that it does. It's just like a bunch of cringy ass, like it's just the same playbook of human rights and blah, blah, blah. And like what's, what's I guess the work, and maybe I'll, I'm going to let you go. Maybe I kept you for over an hour. But um you know, the, the work for someone like you and I guess someone like me is to just like fight back against talking points and kind of complicate things 
and get people to pay attention to like at least take their eyes off of the stupid places and the stupid sources and the dumb venues and maybe give sort of other sources a chance, other voices, possibly your podcast, possibly my podcast, or like the people we choose to platform or whatever. I mean, not to make it about us, but the idea that we can sort of, you know, we can, this is the, the beginning of Orientalism has this quote from Marx from the 18th Brumaire, uh, the 18th Brumaire of, of Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte or Napoleon? Or Louis Bonaparte. And he says, oh, the, 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 they cannot represent themselves. They must be represented. And like that is a kind of, that's still one of the sort of mantras today of Orientalism, even though we've had in the past 20 years, since the sort of legacy of the Iraq war, they, they, they sort of rose an army of native informants from all different walks of life. Like they got, they got Iranian ones, they got Iraqi ones, they got African ones. Uh, they got Russian ones, they got South American ones, right? Like they, 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 they can just parade them out. They all give them jobs and prestigious universities. Like there's different tiers of each of these places. Like it's amazing. Like just the empire and it's sort of, it's such a sort of productive source of labor, job search. But like all of this is to say that like, what is the job of someone, like, people like us to just, is it to just fight back against the lies or is it to kind of, or is it to do something more? Because I risk, sometimes I worry about like, am I just, am I just like, um, you know, am I just like, like, am I just spinning my wheels? Am I wasting my time trying to like, trying to convince people that maybe like Iran is more of a democracy than you realize? Maybe like it has a higher particip voter participation rate than uh, over here. Like maybe like, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. And it's like, and as if, as if like the idea that there is some kind of like, as if there's like some kind of like special club that is seemingly Western nations are a part of that we let in, you know, that are our allies and stuff. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like what, what universe do you imagine that like the, the you know, uh, you know, the, the freedom loving chorus of like, God knows what psychos, like in what embassy, like Venezuelan, you know, like Venezuelan regime changers, like these are not the paragons of democracy, they're regime changers. So like all of this is to say, like, how do you view your work? Is it just, is it, is it proactive? Is it reactive? Is it a mixture of both? Is it evolving? I, I originally, um, you know, it's, yes, it's uh, rose out of a reaction because I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you <laughs> agree that I'm just sick and tired of all these uh, same Western media, mainstream media voices talking about China and, and when I know they're they're talking about bullshit, and I wanted to give like a Chinese voice, uh, you know, as someone who was born in China, grew up in China for thirteen years, uh, you know, I I we have deep ties with China. I I wanted to explain China from my own lens, from my own perspective, um, you know, to to whoever who wants uh, that wants to listen. I mean, before I didn't even know there are you know people who just would even listen to me. I, I was, uh, you know, I was lucky to be invited to Radio Warner show to talk about uh, a, a period of Chinese history, the Taiping Rebellion, which happened after the Opium War. And then to my surprise, I find that, yes, <laughs> I, I could have an audience. And I really, that's, that's, that's what drives me, just like to talk to whoever would listen. And I know, I find out there are actually many people who are curious or interested to know more, to, 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 fight, to, 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 more, 
to to find out more than just like the 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 same mainstream narratives about China. And and for me, that that is fulfilling. That that I am making a difference. You know, I don't I don't care if it's a few hundred, a few thousand. You know, whoever, if I can just help them open their eyes a little bit to 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 present a a, a different picture, a, a new possibility. I mean, maybe that will help them to you know go down their own search for for better truth. And I will be happy with that. Okay, Carl, that was a great way to end it. Thank you for your time. That was a lot of fun. Yes, yes. Uh, I I gotta invite you to my my show. 